The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 295 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. My topic today is what individuals should know about protecting their genetic information. Genetic information is information that's embedded in all of the processes that our bodies use to transfer our characteristics to our children. Now, sometimes genetic information is referred to by journalists and non-experts like me as genetic heritage information because we understand it as a heritage that our children inherit from us and their children inherit from them. Now, genetic information is a particular type of personal health information, which is all the information that doctors, hospitals and many others collect about us. Now, genetic information is information that has enormous power, as was dramatically displayed by, King, by England's King Richard III, who died 500 years ago. In 2012, his body was discovered during excavations under a car park in England. His genetic information was then analyzed to identify his family genetic heritage, which was then used to successfully link him to a Canadian citizen currently living in Canada. Which is why our topic, what individuals should know about protecting their genetic information, is so important. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Bill Bonner and Man Zawati. Bill is Associate Professor at the Paul J. Hill School of Business, University of Regina, Saskatchewan, where he teaches on the subject of management information systems. He's conducted research on privacy for over 10 years, and as a privacy advocate, he believes that at the core of privacy is the question of respect, and that he also believes that this respect is important and worth protecting. He recognizes that privacy interests must be balanced against other interests, but what puzzles him is how unbalanced the balancing act appears to be in practice. He thinks that the scales used to balance privacy expectations against other interests seem to tilt too easily in favor of other interests. Now, Mann is a lawyer and academic coordinator at the Center of Genomics, and policy at McGill University. He's an associate member of the Biomedical Ethics University at, uh, Unit at McGill University. His research focuses on legal and ethical aspects of biobanking, which is 
basically the use of computers to store all this kind of information we're talking about. And he also focuses on the duties of healthcare professionals. He's published widely on genomic research, legal liability of physicians, and closures of biobanks. He's chief tutor of the School for Graduate Studies Ethical Issues in Genetics at McGill University's Faculty of Medicine. He sits on the board of directors of the Canadian Bioethics Society, and he represents Eastern Canada, that is Quebec, and is a legal representative on the Research Ethics Committee of the Montreal General Hospital. So welcome to the show, Bill and Man. Well, thank you for having us. Great. Now, let me start with you, Bill, please. Please tell us more about your career and explain to us how you became interested in studying privacy of personal information. Bill? Yeah, no, thanks. Thank you. Um, I come at it a bit late. I started off my career in the private sector um, in Vancouver working as an accountant, uh, and I came into information systems by timing. Uh, the PC came out, distributed computing came out, and it was just a fascinating time to, to be there. Um, and went from to get into information systems. After that, I, I moved to Halifax and, and tripped over the opportunity to teach, and that just excited me no end. I had never even considered teaching before. Um, in order to pursue teaching, I had to go away and do a PhD. So from Halifax, I went off to uh, Calgary and did a PhD in information systems, and that's where I started to look at at, at privacy as an issue. Very specifically, as you mentioned in, in, in the in the introduction, I view privacy as being respect for the individual, and so. What puzzled me in, 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 in approaching, well, bear in mind, please, that you know, information systems are heavily implicated in the issues of privacy. That's where the data is stored. Um, and so it became a puzzle for me was that there are a lot of laws, a lot of privacy laws, particularly since the 70s uh, with the introduction of, 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 of modern computers. But broadly speaking, privacy defined as respect for the individual seemed to escape between the gaps in laws. And that became just fascinating. I mean, if you're going to have to pick a research topic, this should be something that, A, puzzles you, B, you, you value, and C, can get your blood boiling. And so uh, <laughs> when you see these kind of abuses, so it was just a, a pure, um, fantastic opportunity for me to, to and a field for me to, to, uh, to investigate. Great. Now, Man, same question for you. Please tell us more about your career and how you became interested in studying how genetic heritage my word, information, your word, genetic information is handled. Man? Yeah, um, you know, as an academic coordinator in, at the Center of Genomics and Policy, my research, um, you know, mainly focuses, as you mentioned in your introduction, around um, the ethical legal issues in biobanking. Now, biobanking is, you know, an organized collection of data and samples, and um, a part of that research uh, uh, really concentrates on, on how that data is handled, specifically when we talk about access. So these biobanks are created so that researchers are able to access them in the future to further research and to um, enrich the biobank itself. And uh, in order to be able to do that, there are a number of different aspects or issues that need to be um, looked into um, and and you know one of them is is, is access and and how the data itself is handled. So this is really how I got into uh, this topic. And also in my research uh, around the um, legal duties of of researchers, um, again the issue of privacy, the issue of how data is handled, uh, comes a lot. Now, uh, man, I want to. Um 
I, I really want to follow up slightly on that in a question that's going to follow, which is uh, essentially your work. But before I do that, I'd like to ask Bill about his work as it relates to the handling of personal health information. That is the whole thing. Bill, please tell us about your work in detail in relation to personal health information. Okay. Uh, well, my, my work typically tries to extricate the privacy interest of an issue from the technology that's employed that raises the issue. So I generally find it very, very frustrating to hear people say technology is causing Okay, if I had a smartphone on my desk right now, I couldn't tell it to go home and make dinner for me. It's not smart at all. So the issue, I want to extricate the privacy issue from the technology that's employed in computers specifically. Um, because I feel what we focus on is uh, what is different because of the technology and dismiss um, carry-forward values like respect and so on. At the moment, I'm wrapping up historical research around the confidentiality of health information, both in Ontario and in the United States. There were, there were the public inquiries into, into abuses by insurance companies, insurance adjusters, and private detectives on their behalf, accessing information they were not entitled to. Um, in fact, information in conflict, uh, <laughs> not acting in the interests of the patient was basically the way it was worded. Um, it's largely pre-computer technology. Around the uh, which, which separates the technology from the issue of personal health information, and one of the fascinating things I'm looking at and, and trying to get grasp is the ethical justifications for these actions. Um, these 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 are people required to testify under oath for how they came to logically, in their own minds, um, justify the abusing the health information of others, which is basically accessing it and sharing it with other people. And my goal is to see, at least the short term with this historical data, is to see if lessons available from the past have been applied to uh, the electronic health record in the present. And I, I'm a little afraid that some of those lessons have been completely ignored. Right. Now, Mum, my question to you is about more detail from you about the work you, you do mm -hmm. as, as it relates specifically to the handling of genetic information. Mum? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so uh, here at the center, uh, uh, one project that we are involved with is the Canadian Partnership for Tomorrow project, which is a consortium of, uh, you know, different biobanks working at a national scale. Um, and uh, and my role is as the data access officer. So uh, basically, uh, um, you know, I receive requests uh, um, and and you know, sort of try to streamline the process to a decision by a another committee, which is what we call the Access Oversight committee and then after that the researcher is given the data that they have requested um, if we approve it so part of that is is you know and part of creating the system or working on creating the system uh, required a number of different um, um, elements and and uh, you know we always use um, policies and we always use documentation so in terms of preparing preparing those documentation it included you know data access agreements it included the um, uh, data access policy it included a data application form so my role was really to make sure that uh, what the participants who are um, you know, part of this research who are providing their data and samples, what we promised them in the consent form is reflected in all those different documents. Uh, we wanted to make sure that obviously if we limited the access um, to their data to certain, you know, projects or to a certain project with certain objectives, that that, that will be reflected in uh, that documentation. So, 
uh, as an access as a data access officer, I have to make sure that submissions are you know prima facie scientifically and ethically valid, um, and and that they respect the wishes of the participants, which is embedded in the formulation of these various documentation. Thanks. I'm going back to Bill just quickly. Mm-hmm. I've started out by saying that um, this genetic information uh, is uh, just a in a way, a subset of personal health information, which, Bill, you're studying. Do you agree with the way I've put that, or would you want to rephrase it? No, I think it's fine. I think it's, uh, it, is, uh, it is related to and certainly part of. Yes, the umbrella idea, I like. Yeah, okay. Man, do you agree with the way I put it? Do you have yeah. any variations? No, actually, there is a lot of discussion, you know, a couple of years on, on what we call genetic exceptionalism. Um, but but that conversation is is either waning down or hopefully uh, uh, you know over in terms of people thinking or seeing genetic data or information as being completely separate. Uh, but I, I agree with the formulation. I agree with your formulation. I think it's part of personal health information. Right. Good. Now, at this point, we um, take the break because this is where I always say we have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Alley, and my guests are Dr. Bill Bonner and Man Zawati. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Have you been struggling to rediscover your sexual life? How do relationships really work? Are there some topics that should be off the table? Listen for Love, Sex, and Communication with host Reverend Dr. Stuart Block. Dr. Block has spent decades helping adults to have more pleasure, satisfaction, and higher levels of communication. It can mean more pleasurable, caring relationships. Love, Sex, and Communication can be heard live every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, Hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Bill bon- Bonner and Man Sawati. Our topic is what individuals should know about protecting their genetic information. Now, both of you, let's talk about the challenges associated with the increasing use of big computers in compiling and handling 
personal health information and what I term the genetic heritage information, though Man would call it the genetic information. So starting with you, Bill, please. What are the most challenging of the challenges to privacy in the increasing use of computers for handling personal health information generally? Bill? Yep. Uh, that's uh, okay. Ultimately, one of my the biggest challenges from my perspective is that we begin to think of it as purely data. Uh, the computers process data, it's health data, and in that sense, we depersonalize the the, the, the individual involved. Um, it's not people reflected in the data. That, that is a referring to people as data subjects. And if you go back to earlier early privacy principles on which most privacy legislation is based, that's explicitly used. And that concerns me because if you depersonalize the object, then you, you, you loosen the rules around it or the respect for it. Um, so I'm a little concerned with computers, computerization that we, we refer to people as data subjects and take, take liberties that we wouldn't if we were actually faced with a body, with a, with a warm body. Um, the other thing that with respect to computers is that linking uh, health information attracts unwanted eyes. Uh, the gaze of people with, <laughs> I've said, with very, very poor manners, okay? And sometimes with altruist, no, sorry, uh, um, uh, aims of their own that are not necessarily in the interest of the, of, of the patient. I'm, I'm, I'm repeatedly surprised here in Canada as I look at privacy commissioner investigations that the breaches are voyeurs, just people who have a, an interest in looking at the records, their friends, their lovers, their former lovers, who knows, uh, just plain voyeurs because it's all there sitting in, in, in the data, in a data format. Um, I think in the States there was a problem, the United States there was a problem with uh, health, health organizations like the, uh, the Blue Cross or the, or the like. Their data was stolen and then returned to them in portions and they were held hostage said, okay, we'll release all the data and the companies that you support will become aware of how, how, how you have not protected the data unless you pay us money. So big data, big computers, it attracts unwanted detention potentially. Right. And, and generally speaking, if others will see the value in the data. And historically, it was insurance companies. And, and so if you build it, I think they will come. <laughs> come collecting. Yeah. Now, Man, I'm going to now ask you exactly the same question. What are the most challenging of the challenges to privacy in the increasing use of computers for handling genetic information? Huh? Yeah. Um, again, let's take the example of, of biobanks. And, and, you know, since we're talking about samples and we're talking about associated data, we're also talking about databases. So one of the things that we are seeing um, uh, emerge more and more is the need to um, to either um, federate or, or centralize the process of, of you know, um, of databases. So if we, you know, if you have a, a project who that are, you know, that is collecting data and samples in one region or in one province, um, because of the importance of collaborative research, we end up partnering with different projects and so on and so forth. So we have various different databases, or small databases, and if we want to really increase the visibility of a project, we, we tried as much as possible to create a one-stop shop or a one-stop access uh, portal. Now, in order to do that, uh, uh, that requires a lot of work in you know, shipping and sending in the information. So uh, I would tell you uh, the, the, the challenge, and I wouldn't call it necessarily a, you know, a challenging of the challenges, but I would see it as a challenge today is to keep uh, you know, abreast of all those different changes and really uh, monitor the data flow. 
Um, and, and the issue of access to that or unauthorized access is very, very important. So the challenge is that and to make sure that the, we have good mechanisms that are uh, in place to limit uh, uh, as much as we can, uh, any breaches or any unauthorized access, and whether that be through the processes themselves, whether it be through the software that is used in the database, or whether it be through the different agreements that are signed with the different partners. Right. Now, Bill, I'm going to ask you um, to give us a sense of what an in individuals um, should regard as the challenges that that they should take into consideration when they're trying to decide whether to consent to computer compilations of their own personal health information. So what, what, what should they consider, Bill, when they're being asked for their consent? Bill? Okay, fair enough. Um, just up front with the idea of giving consent, um, one of my concerns is, the, is, is whether the option is even provided to them. Okay, and, and, and we're assuming that's done. I hope that's done. But um, the biggest problem is whether the option is provided or not. And then second, if it is provided, provided in such a way that people know that the option exists. Um, I've repeatedly seen in, in privacy statements, for example, you know, you have a seven or 8,000 word privacy statement around word 4,000. They say, if we do not hear from you, we will assume we have your permission. So that kind of thing around consent, sometimes it's not even asked of you. But let's just say that it is. And the question is whether or not to consent. One of the biggest challenges facing people is getting fair information on what you are actually consenting to. Um, uh, these, you have these long-winded privacy policies um, that don't actually tell you anything. And, and some experts have gotten together to write them, and I don't think they're necessarily trying to obfuscate, but they are certainly trying to protect themselves. And so in terms of giving consent, you know, it's very, very hard to interpret these policies for any actual substance and what... Um, what it is you're, you're being told. I'm, I'm curious what, what Mon's got there in terms of the, of the, uh, the consent. Um, understand, too, I think for individuals that privacy legislation is a minimum set of rules, and the consent is also defined in there, um, that will be seen as obstacles to overcome. So we, we need your consent, but consent's not spelled out. Is it informed consent? Is it implied consent? Is it we don't hear from you consent? Um, and so I think people have to be very, very aware of, of, the, of the form of consent. The other thing I think the challenge to people is to say no, <laughs> right up front, no. Um, you may eventually uh, say yes, but say no and force an explanation of what consent means. And I think that's very, very hard for people to do. They're just too darn polite. Um, we, if we say no, we force answers to the why question instead of having to always answer, well, why not? I think the hard part is getting an answer to the why question. Right. Now, man. Um, again, again, it's the same question. The most challenging of the challenges for individuals deciding whether to give their consent to computer compilations of their genetic information. And Bill was also very keen to hear your answer on this one. So, Man, please. Yeah, and, and uh, a number of the, the things that, that Bill just mentioned, I, I totally agree with. I think uh, the issue today is in terms of what we inform the participants. So uh, the, the consent is, is unfortunately uh, um, described or seen as simply a form. It's not a form. It's more than just a form. It's a process, and it's a continuous process. And I think the other thing as well that we have to really be careful is the setting. So whether we are in a research setting or we are in a clinical setting, and what we do provide to the patients or to the participants. 
um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I would simply, uh, um, you know, add um, that that you know, other than the options and, and getting the information, I think it's really important to um, clearly specify the limitations as well. Uh, one issue that we are seeing today more and more in the consent forms is that a lot of researchers say we will protect your privacy, or we you know, promise or, you know, there are limitations that exist and people need to know about that. And also at the same time, um, there is this, this move, or unfortunately it's been there for a very long time, which the the use of individual autonomy as the approach where we actually provide much, much of the information that we can just to protect ourselves. At the end of the day, the participant or the patient doesn't really get out a lot of information from, which, which is one of the points the bill brought up. And, and I think the, the ideal is to have something that is clear, concise, and that provides enough information for them to make the informed decision about, and limitation is part of it. Right. Now, I want to go back to Bill and also to Mern with, with a difficult question, but it's a relatively quick one, and that is in some places, uh, the mere act of going to get some health care, either from a doctor or a hospital or somewhere else, is taken to mean that you've given consent to the disclosure of your personal health information. Um, first of all, am I right in saying that, Bill? And if, even if I'm not, what do you think of it as a principle? I'm not entirely sure whether you're right or not. As a principle, I would think it's dead wrong. Um, I, I would be a dead wrong. I'd be very, very opposed to anyone assuming that right. Uh, at the very least, there should be a discussion that takes place. Right. Now, Man, same question, but this time, obviously, about genetic information. Are there cir circumstances where the mere fact that you have gone for something mm -hmm. uh, is considered to be you having consented to mm -hmm. the sharing of your genetic information? Man? Yeah. No, and I, I, I also agree with Bill, but but this time I think I think in in my case, uh, and also if we look at the province of Quebec, this is completely um, this is this is wrong. As in as in the the idea of um, the setting is very important. So obviously, when you go to a clinical setting where you get help, you are consenting to getting help, but it's not the same thing as consenting to disclosure of your information. What you're you know um, providing is a consent to actually disclose to your part to your to your physician um, what we can consider as sensitive information or as personal information or personal health information but you're not at any time uh, uh, permitting this to be shared with with third parties and and the law is clear on that here you know in Quebec about about disclosure of information and physicians are, are you know are bound by uh, a professional secrecy as well so not just not the mere act of going to a clinic or meeting with a physician that you are consenting to the disclosure to third parties. No. Just very quickly, and does that disclosure um, situation that you've just described include genetic information? Because my understanding is that hospitals are starting to compile genetic information as part of their electronic health records. Again, I may be wrong on that, mm -hmm. but... What about genetic information in that situation where it's automatically being connected, collected as part of a personal health information file? Well, again, it really depends on the circumstances. But if we take, again, the same approach uh, and same idea of simply going somewhere and, 
you need to have the information. You, you need to, there's, there is no implicit consent in terms of disclosure of information. It's not there. It has to be explicit. Obviously, there is implicit consent to you providing the information to your physician. That, that would work the same thing with genetic information. But in order to, for that information to be provided in an identifiable form to others, uh, accessible by others, um, that that is not that that is not possible. Again, this information will be put in a record, but in order for people to access your records, they have to go through a certain process. Okay, very clear. Now we have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adley. My guests are Dr. Bill Bonner and Man Zawati. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Bill Bonner and Man Zawati. Our topic is... What individuals should know about protecting their genetic information? Now, both of you, let's talk about how well, with the increasing use of big computers, you know, the the computers that are collecting everything, um, how how well is the personal health information and, the, in my terms, the genetic heritage information protected? So starting again with you, Bill. In today's world of computer records, in your judgment, in your opinion, how well is the privacy of personal health information protected? Yeah, it's it's a serious challenge in this area. Um, First of all, the idea of of it being, I I would use the words confidentiality perhaps and security rather than privacy, because in my mind, once I've given the information up, it's no longer private. 
Um, but I think the real challenge, and unlike others, like banking, for instance, is fairly straightforward, but the challenge with health records is that they need to be shared. In order for the, for the benefits to be realized and the patient to be served and, and treated, the information has to be, to be, to be shared. Um, and who needs access to, uh, to it depends on some degree on the situation. So predefining levels of access requirements before the event is very, very difficult to do. Um, versus, say, banking. We're banking, you know, you've got nobody's, your money is nobody else's business. Uh, the, 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 the things you're moving around are very, very simple. They're dollars and they're ones and zeros. Um, with respect to at the end of the day, though, with respect to the, um, the, the security and the confidentiality of this information, I think that the kinks of the access that I mentioned earlier, how much access, who should have access, when, um, and the focus on realizing the benefits of the electronic health records are getting the most attention. And security and, as a consequence, co- confidentiality are, I, are, in my opinion, perhaps being left to too few people. In fact, you know, it's, they look at it and say, well, we have to protect data, it's in the computer, that's an IT problem, the IT people should deal with it. And, and I'm concerned about that because it's really not an IT uh, personnel issue. Um, I am absolutely sure that the weakest link is not the technologies, the people who use the system, and those who manage them. Um, but these managers either prepare these people for, for, for protecting the data or they don't, and I suspect not because, well, it's not a management issue, it's an IT issue. So I, I have to say that overall I'm concerned um, that the, the security part of it is taking a back seat. I'm, I'm sure there's some brilliant people working very, very hard at it, but I think perhaps in, in, a, in a part of the organization that can't be as effective because it's IT. Um, my research suggests that if there's any perceived value in gaining access to the health information, people will be tricked out of it. It's going to be the people part that's the weakest part, in my opinion. Right. Man, same question. Um, computer records, our world. How well is the privacy of genetic information protected? Man? Well, I, I, again, I, I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot of common uh, you know, themes and, and links with, with personal health information. Uh, you know, we say here are computer records, but, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, large servers and databases, and we're now talking also about cloud computing as well. Uh, but, but you know, I, I think um, uh, one element with, with gen, you know, genetic uh, information, more specifically in, in, in with regards to access, um, and 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 because we want to balance both the you know the participants uh, um, you know protection of the participants' uh, privacy or the confidentiality of their information, and you know trying to create a, a system where uh, research um, and and researchers are able to access uh, information in a in a you know uh, efficient, equitable, and ethical way. Um, a lot of sort of um, classification of genetic information or genetic data has been done in the past, um, you know, few years, and especially with regard to access. So, um, you know, we have what we call open access, and we have what we have what we call controlled access. So, open access um, is is usually for for information for for genetic data that is aggregated. So, we're it, it you know it reasonably we're not able to identify. Um, uh, the the participant from that information, um, and it's usually done in you know either um, uh, online or through you know through a website or through a portal. But what becomes more interesting is, or you know, more challenging is the data that is potentially re-identifiable. And in order to protect that, well, you know, there are some governance that needs to be 
setup uh, uh, with regards to, you know, the review of the submissions, who access that, to follow up as well. This is not only done at one point. It's not only done when people access and you've given them the uh, authorization that it's over. You really have to follow through and you have to make sure that they, you know, that they respect it. If they don't, then there are sanctions and so on. So I, I think I think we're moving ahead um, and and there are a lot of things that are emerging, a lot of things that we are learning in the process. And technology, obviously, you know, uh, is expanding and it's changing, and we have to adapt uh, to it. Um, but but uh, keeping in mind the interests of all the stakeholders. Right, Bill. Now I'm wanting to ask you, and again, it's a question that parallels for both of you. What should individuals actually know about protecting the privacy of their personal health information? What, what should they understand and actually know? Bill? Okay. Well, a number of things there. Um, I think that people have a lot more, more power to get explanations than they, than they, than they realize. Um, one of the things I would suggest that people should know is that they have the right to say no. Nope, you can't have it. No, you can't share it. And along those lines, not again, as, as the end result, by, my default is you'll never be able to do it. But by doing so, they can find out more information than is normally provided to them through obscure, uh, hard-to-read privacy statements and so on. So I think that people have a lot more power than they realize. Saying no is one way of finding out a lot more information than they're normally provided. Force the explanation. If you don't understand it, force it again. And know that it's not you. Okay? Oh, we always do that, right? Oh, I don't get it. It must be me. No, 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 no. If you don't get it, it's not being explained very well. Get another explanation. So I think people should know that they have an awful lot of power at their disposal. With respect to um, another thing that people should know with respect certainly to electronic health records is I am very, very impressed with logs that have been created. I'm, I'm only aware of the, of the four western provinces, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and B.C., that the individual can access records about who has accessed their electronic health record in an incredible amount of detail. Uh, like down to the what, what fields were looked at, and this is your right to access this record. And I think that gives people a lot of power too, because one of my concerns, as I mentioned earlier, is I don't think management has been um, impressed. It hasn't been pressed upon management enough that this is a cost potentially to the organization because people don't know. Whereas if people went and checked their logs and found that people were accessing information they were not entitled to access, that would go back and, and, and reflect poorly on the organization and the management of the organization that permitted that to happen. So I think people should know that they have this power and authority to see, and through the act of seeing, they can increase uh, accountability and responsibility. Right. Man, what should individuals know about protecting the privacy of their genetic heritage information and there i've used the word heritage man what should they know about protecting the privacy of that man yeah and uh, you know i would like to reiterate uh, the uh, what bill mentioned about the clarity of the information uh, but also you know if we take for example again a research setting where you have a consent form that is you know submitted to the participant and they have to consent to their information being sent out you know in a database or shared, there are a number of different things I think, you know, more specifically that a participant has to look at. First of all, when it comes to confidentiality, um, you know, it, it, and it's also a, a, an element not only for participants but also for researchers, do not promise unequivocal 
you know, privacy or, 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 or um, uh, confidentiality of information. Uh, that, you know, is not possible these days. Um, uh, and I'll come to that in a, in a, in a moment. Um, the other thing as well that we have to explain in the consent form is who has access to that information, who will access it. So, you know, obviously the researchers and the team, the staff, but also in what form. How would that information be submitted to them? Would it be in an identifiable form or would it be in a coded form where, you know, no identifiables will be you know, uh, provided to the, to the person who is accessing. And also, when we talk about who has access, we have to talk about who cannot have access. And, and some projects, for example, limit the access uh, to insurance companies and to employers. Um, the other thing as well is risks. Um, so, and this is why, you know, I'm coming back to my initial point, which is the promising, you know, absolute confidentiality is that we know today that breaches can happen, and this is a risk, right? So uh, uh, breaches of, of information can happen. This is a risk, but we cannot just simply say that there's a risk of breach. We also have to explain what we have in, in the system or what we have prepared to ensure that this is limited as much as possible and, and you know, what they will be doing about it. And the other final thing as well is also it comes back to the idea of who has access, but also in terms of legal uh, reporting um, and and legal uh, uh, you know submission uh, or to submit for uh, let's say a court decision or uh, in the case where you have uh, uh, you know the police or, or the government uh, requesting access and there are limits um, that uh, the law creates in terms of information or at least in terms of providing such information to third parties like for example in a public health case uh, there are some diseases for example that need to be transferred to a public health health agencies, whether it's the Canadian one or whether it is the provincial ones. Um, so all these information need to be clarified in a concise and, um, and clear format for the participants before they actually consent. Right. Now, I'd like to ask you both a quick and difficult question, and that is this. Um, to what extent are people who are, who are consenting, one way or another, to the use of their information, and I'm talking especially about genetic information, but not completely, um, how, to what extent are they really aware and thinking about the point that it's not only them and their genetic information, it's their children and their children's children that they're giving consent to? Now, man, first of all, I know this is a difficult question, and we've only a few seconds to answer it. But what do you think about that question? Um, well, I mean, it all depends on how it is, you know, provided to them, and also the discussion that happens. But uh, uh, I don't think, I mean, the, there's something uh, palpable here where you can see how the, or at least studies that discuss how people, um, you know, decide on on these issues and if they take into consideration their future generations. But at least from from a uh, a more uh, direct point of view, there's, there are some consent forms, and, and, and today, even in different requirements and statements or ethical statements, we talk about the information and the family relatives. So sometimes there, there is information that, that um, uh, could affect family members, and we would like the participants to be able to um, express their, uh, their point of view about sharing such information with family members. Uh, so, so, you know, in terms of the information not only affecting directly the participant, but also other members of his uh, biological family or relatives, uh, uh, this is something that could come up. But in terms of future generations, uh, the data probably is not uh, as clear as, uh, as it is at this point. Bill, just very quickly, have you actually encountered 
this question about who who in the future uh, am I consenting to um, disclosing of information? Has it come your way? Uh, yes, question? Gordon, you presented it to me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. All right. I don't think people have, um, have think that far ahead or can or yet. Anyway, I think it's just way too new an idea to, to realize that what you do today uh, has, has future consequences. Right. Exactly. Okay. Now, on that question of time, we do have to take the break, so we'll take it now. This is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guests are Dr. Bill Bonner and Man Zawati. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Do you ever just ask why? If others, especially children, ask you the same question, how do you answer? Is life a whole bunch of questions just waiting for the right answer? When you tune in to The Mickey Ellison Show, you'll find out how to find the answers and open up so many more questions as you do. At what point in our lives did we stop answering the why questions and just settle for whatever answer we've been programmed to settle for? Never stop asking why. Join Mickey Ellison every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Bill Bonner and Man Zawati. Our topic is what individuals should know about protecting their genetic information. So now I'm going to ask you questions about what you would like to do and see done to improve things. First of all, with Bill. What more would you like to do through your work to improve protection of individuals' privacy or confidentiality of their personal health information? Bill? Okay. I think one of the prime, prime goals of mine is, is to draw attention to the distinction between need and want. That too often, it was through, through stories, through the research that I do, through historical stories and, 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 and inquiries and stuff, reveal enough instances where want is disguised as a need to change the narrative, to force the question, to make people say, why do you need it? And hopefully that will lead towards a better explanation, people walking away saying, I can't explain it, and therefore not going after personal health information. So that's part of it. One, um, make clearer distinctions in the, between need and want, and, and with that, help people say no and, and force, well, what do you mean by that? And is this, you know, where's the substance of your argument? 
Um, and secondly, I think I've got to get away from, from academic papers and conferences because I know, I don't even think my mother reads my academic papers. But I think shows like yours um, and, and writing to the people who are affected by this would be more effective uh, effort on my part. Right. Good. Man, same question. What more would you like to do through your work to improve protection of genetic heritage information, genetic information? Man? Yes, uh, I, I really actually second what, what Bill just mentioned about you know knowledge translation, especially to the public. I think it's a very very important endeavor, and and you know if you want to change, it's from the you know sometimes from the bottom down, from the you know from the bottom up, um, and um, and you know the public um, are an essential an essential part of this whole process. It's not a bilateral relationship anymore. The public plays a very important role. Um, now in terms of my Work. I think uh, one of the things that are that we that I'm seeing more and more is this idea of trying to um, you know create collaborations within with the researchers, whether it's national or whether it's international, and it's the idea of trying as much as possible to both take into consideration the difference the jurisdictions into the legislation of, of the different countries to try to make sure that we have, um, you know, policies and that we have, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, documents that that really reflect uh, that and and does not contradict, um, so that you know we can have as much as we um, uh, possibly can uh, uh, participants that know that they are consenting to something that will seriously and certainly protect their uh, their information. Uh, right. So, so yeah. Okay. Now, Bill, as a political question, what more would you like to see done by governments to improve protection of individuals' privacy and confidentiality re relating to their personal health information? Mm -hmm. Bill? Well, I think in Canada we've done a, a pretty good job with the various provincial health acts, to, and, and they've done some good stuff, and they have the authority to conduct investigations, and they have, and it's been and that I like. Where I am disappointed, though, is in the enforcement aspect. There is the potential for very serious signs, uh, fines to be assessed, but I know in Saskatchewan that has never been done. And we've got some incredible breaches taking place here. And without that, there's a, there's a subculture, I think, of I want, therefore I take, or everyone else is looking, so why can't I? But I think needs a wake-up call, and I think that can only be accomplished through fines, which gets the attention of management, who then focuses on their people and prepares and, 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 and monitors their people. So I think that would be the biggest thing, would be the enforcement aspect. It's missing. It's there. Uh, we have learned not to touch electric wires. I think we should get the same idea around poking around other people's health records. Right. Mom, what would you like to see done by healthcare systems to improve protection of individuals' privacy, confidentiality of their genetic information? Mom? Well, I mean, it really, really depends on, on the jurisdiction and, and on the different healthcare systems and or at least the um, the status of, of the uh, healthcare system in the provinces. But one thing that I would say in terms of the new challenges that we're facing, that one thing that we definitely need is a more of a participatory approach, decision-making. Um, obviously, there are uh, mandates uh, that need to be respected and there are authorities uh, that are, you know, that are required to, to take decisions and, uh, on certain aspects. But I think in terms of prospective policymaking in the future, it's really important to, um, uh, to both 
um, make you know have it as a as a pragmatic participatory approach, but also include um, the various stakeholders that have an interest in that. You know, when we talk about healthcare, uh, um, uh, you know, and and data protection, we usually think about the lawyers, but it's not only the lawyers. We're talking also about you know the ethicists. We're talking also about the people who actually uh, manage the or curate the, the the database. And we're talking also about the researchers and the scientists and the and the physicians. There are a number of different stakeholders. And also, more importantly today, is the patients themselves, the participants, they have a say in that. Uh, so this real collaborative and, and participatory approach is, is really needed because that's the only thing that will increase and also sustain the public's trust. Right. Very, very helpful, both of you. Now, just to wind up, I want to clarify something with you that we've that's come up, um, first with Bill and then with Man. You've drawn a distinction, both of you, between privacy and confidentiality. Please, would you just, Bill, first, clarify the distinction between those two things. Bill? Okay. No, for me, the, the, the privacy is what I choose to keep private, what I do not reveal to others. Um, once, once it's been revealed, it's no longer private. It's now shared with somebody else, and now we have expectations of another person. Um, you share information with your wife. You don't share it with other people. You trust your wife to, to keep that between you. Um, and that, and that gets into the, you know, it's no longer private. She knows it, um, but I expect her to respect it and keep it confidential. So that's the distinction I, 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 I have. Mm-hmm. Very clear. Man, so far yeah, as genetic I'll... information, what's the distinction between privacy and confidentiality? Well, I don't really think it differentiates really between the, the you know, the type of, of data or type of information. And, and I'll, I'll answer probably from more of a legalistic point of view is uh, privacy is seen as an individual right. So I have a right to privacy. Uh, now, in, when it comes to your information, it's a, it's a question of confidentiality of the information because we're talking about specific information, specific data. So, I mean, uh, there, there are a lot of discussions and people usually uh, conflate the two. Uh, people talk about privacy and, and, you know, especially in consent forms, you see a lot, well, the privacy of your information will be protected and so on, but it's actually confidentiality. And the reason why is because one is an individual right and one is a protection based on that individual right. Very clear. Now, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this powerful episode. Um, I want to say thank you to you both um, for the way in which you've explained what is obviously a complex and socially challenging topic um, and the way you've emphasized the need to bring people into particularly patients and individuals who themselves, whose data whose genetic information, whose genetic heritage is, whose personal health information is being compiled, explored, and shared. And the distinction you made between privacy and confidentiality is very clear, as are all of the points you've made. So thank you. It's been powerful, and it's been helpful, and it's something that gives us all, I think, some confidence that you and people like you are focusing on the challenges so that they're overcome. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be holistic health insurance. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.